Welcome to the SIDCast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. Less attention to work, better ability to meet the expectations of people who matter at work. Because people are more focused on the things that matter to them. They let go of the things that don't matter so much. They are more focused on the things that matter to the people around them, and they're less distracted in their pursuit. They bring more energy and more focus to the things that matter, and so they perform better. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Stuart Friedman, a professor and thought leader from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. I've known Stu literally for uh, decades. Our own research overlaps in a variety of places, particularly around senior executives and the decisions they make and the extent to which they live moral lives, both in terms of how they get paid, how they think about other people, how they try to grow their organizations. Stu is uh, really a, a tremendous uh, colleague of mine as well. Even though we haven't done research together directly, I've always looked at some of the work that he's done and admired the work that he's done. He's a real thought leader. Stu started off as an organizational psychologist. That was really his initial uh, training, and he worked actually in the mental health field before getting his PhD from the University. University of Michigan. He's the founding director of the Wharton Leadership Program and has worked extensively on work-life balance. He won't like that word, and you'll hear him talk about that in our conversation, but the work-life integration project in particular, and he's been honored for that work for a long time. He's worked with uh, companies uh, extensively. He was actually at Ford for two and a half years running or helping to run their leadership development activities. He's published uh, all over the place, and the books that uh, maybe he's most well-known for are Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life, and that subtitle tells you a lot about how he thinks about leadership and then leading the life you want, skills for integrating work and life together. The most recent book he's published, which just came out in the spring of uh, this year, is Parents Who Lead, The Leadership Approach You Need to Parent with Purpose, Fuel Your Career and Create a Richer Life. And that's the book I want to talk about today and why I wanted Stu on to come onto the SIDCast. You know, first of all, the idea that you can take what we know about leadership, about corporate leadership, about being a leader in the nonprofit sector, in politics, in business, and apply it to parents. Parenting is a very cool uh, idea. I've actually done a lot of work in the education field, working with principals and superintendents and assistant principals and applying what I know about leadership to that world. And it turns out it's extremely applicable, completely relevant, and has made a, uh, I hope, a big difference in how some of those schools are running. So the idea that leadership can apply to other fields that maybe you don't traditionally think of as leadership type fields, I think is inherently a smart one. But parenting, that's taking it even further. But I think it makes sense because, you know, what does it mean to be a parent? And what does it mean to think about a parent as a leader? First of all, I'm going to say it's exactly what parents want to do, at least that they try to do, given the constraint of life and economic conditions that, that different people live under. You know, we want our kids to be independent. We want them to be strong, to make good choices, to work well with others, to be empathetic in particular, to truly care about what other people are doing and helping other people and about civil society as well. We want our kids to be loving and to love others and to be able to accept love themselves. And we want them to contribute. 
whether that's to the people around them, to the groups they work with, to the institutions they're part of. But most of all, most fundamentally, the job of the parent is really to raise a child to have an impact, a positive impact on the world and to be able to live an independent and meaningful life. And all of those things are things that could be helped and advanced when we think about applying leadership. When you look at it this way, it's not hard to imagine that various leadership skills are going to help us become more effective parents. The thing I like about Stuart's work is he doesn't just pontificate and say, well, leaders should have a strong vision, therefore parents should have a strong vision and be able to convey that vision to others. Parents should do exactly the same thing for their own kids. Yes, you need, to, you need a vision and he does talk about it, but what he does is he actually gives us tools and techniques and even some coaching on how to do all of that, how to apply that, how to think about that. And so this episode of the SIDCast is going to have a lot of practical ideas and I'm going to ask, and I do ask uh, Stu, you know, how does this apply? What do you recommend? What have you done in your own coaching work and workshops with parents that, to help them become more effective leaders? Now, I don't mean to say that uh, everything we know about leadership can simply be applied to being a parent. It's like any other idea from any sphere. I think we need to be educated consumers of knowledge. We need to take and learn about and then take whatever good ideas we hear anywhere and say, okay, how might that apply to my world? Not just to parenting, but to my particular family and my particular circumstance. Some things will make sense from leadership and some things may be a little bit less so. But, you know, being this educated consumer of knowledge requires us to think and think about how does it apply? How will it apply to us? How can we learn from these other areas? And how do you do that? Well, we need to be open-minded, first of all, to even be alert, to be aware of what we know. And Stu Friedman makes this easier because he wrote the book, Parents That Lead. Uh, We need maybe some creativity to think about how to apply it. And most of all, we really need a willingness to want to get better at whatever it is that we do. So I think there's a tremendous opportunity to learn from other areas. In this case, today with Stu Friedman, to learn about leadership and how it applies to parenting. And as you'll see, we'll talk about how this maybe has never been more important in the age of COVID, in the age of maybe what is a revolution in race relations, or at least uh, is going in that direction, and hopefully will continue to go in that direction, and is also a time when mental health concerns have never been more important. You know, the last two episodes of the SIDCast with Dr. Rita Sharon and then Cherry Rose Tan, both in effect talking about mental health. So we're in the midst of some very challenging times. And as parents, we need all the help we can get. And so turning to Stu Friedman and learning about his research and his application of learning and research on leadership to becoming a more effective parent is particularly timely. So it's my absolute pleasure to talk to Professor Stuart Friedman and bring him into the SIDCast. Welcome to the SIDCast. It's Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with an old buddy from University of Pennsylvania Warden School, Stu Friedman. How are you, Stu? I'm very well. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. We kind of go back to a different generation of leadership scholars. I think you may have gotten your PhD a a touch before me, but in the 80s, right? 1984, University of Michigan. Okay, and I was 1988 at Columbia University, so it's the same general area. And you've done a lot of different work over the years and interesting books that have gotten a lot of press and made a difference. Uh, But you have a new book. I want to start off by talking about that new book. First of all, what is the book? It's called Parents Who Lead. Parents Who Lead. Why did you write this book? Well, a few reasons. One was that in the dozen or so years since the publication of Total Leadership, where I have laid out a program for how to grow as a leader and integrate the different parts of your life for mutual gain, to be a better leader, have a richer life. That's the subtitle. And been teaching that course and bringing that content to organizations and groups around the world. Many people who have been 
in that program, my classes have said to me, hey, can you do a version of this that I could do with my partner as a kind of a team and, and to focus on the particular challenges of raising children? So I've heard it from the marketplace, if you will. But also a few years ago, as I was turning 65, you know, my kids asked me what I wanted for my birthday, this milestone birthday. And I told them there was no material thing that I wanted, but rather that each one of them take a bit of time to write to me about what they would like me to be doing for the remainder of my productive years and how by my doing that, they might be enriched somehow. So that was the gift that I asked them to give to me. And I, I also asked the same of my wife. So I got four of these. Uh, the other part of the deal was that they give me an hour to talk about what they wrote. Wow. So I gave them an assignment, basically. <laughs> the professor gave his family an assignment. And it was a wonderful thing to do. And I recommend it to everyone at any age you know, to mark a special occasion. It was really enlightening and um, you know brought us closer in some ways. One of the themes that emerged from that at least how I interpreted what I was hearing and what we were talking about in the discussion was that I ought to do something like what this book is about. In other words, to bring what I'd been working on these, these last few decades to families to help children, to really focus on that. And then finally, the third reason was that my editor at the Harvard Business Press at around the same time contacted me and said, we are hearing from our readers that we need a guide of tools for working parents. And you're the guy who we want to write that. So will you write this book? And I thought, well, okay, but only if I can do this with a co-author who is herself a millennial mom, tenured professor at DePaul University and a research colleague of mine for the last 10, 15 years or so, so that we do this in collaboration for all kinds of reasons that was going to benefit from that. So for all those reasons, this is more than you wanted to know, Sid, but for all those reasons. That's actually a lot of reasons. You had to do it. You were compelled to do it. It's just kind of, yes, all those reasons yeah, made yeah, it yeah. pretty easy for me to get so into the, it. So the premise is taking what you've learned uh, about leadership from total leadership and elsewhere and saying, okay, how can parents use this knowledge? How could this help them become better parents? Yeah, and to be more productive at work as well as more engaged in the community and to be healthier for themselves. Mm -hmm. So the focus is still on creating benefit or value for all the different parts of your life, your work, your family, your community, and yourself personally, your mind, body, and spirit, but to do it with a particular focus on the parenting partnership, which we define quite broadly and inclusively to mean any kind of pairing or grouping sure. of people who are together raising children and particular challenges they face. Could you share, Stu, an example or two of, of the types of things that, maybe a story or two, because you, you, know, you interview so many people, you work with so many people, that kind of illustrate some of the themes of the book. Well, one of the things that we do at the beginning... Sorry to interrupt, so just letting my listeners know, the lawnmower is very close and getting closer. This is working from home, uh, corporate head office in my dining room right now. So uh, hopefully we'll, we'll be good. Go ahead, Sue, sorry. I can almost smell the cut grass. That would be here. quite a trick. Uh, that's, that's, <laughs> that's the next version of Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need aromas. Uh, more than just visual images. So the, the first set of things that we ask people to do are, are to focus on their values and their vision, essential 
leadership challenges. What do you stand for? What do you care about most? And what's your purpose? Where are you going? So we ask people to write about their most important values, where they've come from, and to do that first individually and then with partner doing the same thing and then discussing those and seeing where they have shared values and where they're different. We ask them to take what I call the four-way view, which is to look at your work, your home, your community, and your private self and to assess, taking 100 points, how important is each one of these domains to you? Then in allocating 100 points according to how important they are. And then in a second column on the simple chart, identifying where you focus your attention in the last week or in a typical week or month on a percentage basis. And then third, on a scale, simple scale of one to 10, how satisfied are you? Or what's your sense of well-being in each of these different parts of your life? And then guess what your partner would say about those phenomena. And then again, share that. Finally, we ask people to write a leadership vision statement. Imagine it's 15 years from now. Describe a day. What happens in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening? Who are you with? Why are you doing what you're doing? What's the impact, legacy that you're trying to create? Again, individually and then together. And of course, we coach people on how to talk to each other and inquire to be curious and collaborative and compassionate as they explore their different values and visions. So that's where it begins. And in our workshops, there are more than a couple of you know partnerships that after they do this exercise, particularly the vision, and they come together to look at their individual visions and then create a shared vision, a collective vision in a shared leadership kind of model, some will say, you know what, we're done. We know what we need to do uh, now. Yeah, uh, you didn't mean we're done as in that's it. I'm done with you. I Now I really know what you're thinking. No, no. <laughs> I, well, uh, no, it was, no, sorry. <laughs> sorry. No, not like... Not slamming the door, but rather opening the door and saying, we've got enough here. We know what we need to do together to to move forward in a way that we hadn't before. Because all this, of course, is to instigate positive change. So that activity, it can be really quite compelling in bringing people closer together and having a better sense of shared understanding of their purpose. One couple that we write about in the book, they decided they have a child with special needs who has a rare physical ailment. And they'd been sort of hiding it from their people at work. They're very private about it. And they realized after thinking through, writing about, talking about their shared values and the vision of the world that they wanted to create a better tomorrow, they realized that they were going to do something different. They decided to begin a fundraiser for research of this rare disease. And the, the mother brought this to her work. And in her conversation with her boss, you know, she, she wasn't sure where she was on the promotion track. And indeed, one of the reasons why she was reluctant to talk about her son's illness is that she feared it might somehow diminish her career prospects. What she found was the opposite, that by bringing this initiative fundraiser forward and making that a part of who she was in the workplace, her, she was seen... Uh, by taking the initiative to do this on behalf of not only her son, but others, it actually raised her leadership profile very explicitly. Her boss said, hey, I didn't know that you're doing all of what you're doing, and that's impressive. How can I help you? So that turned out to be a real boon to her career, while at the same time creating a sense of purpose and gratification that, that was quite meaningful to her. So that's one small tidbit uh, right. of where the beginning can 
That's, I mean, that's a really good one. It's easy to see. I think listeners can think about it and can see how they can actually do something like that. So that type of framing that you described is something that you probably have done some version of that in a management arena for managerial issues or for teams or for top management teams. And so really what I'm seeing is a translation of something that can be, it is very effective for kind of traditional executive training or management training or leadership development and say, okay, what if we applied this to people where we really live, where we are, which is our home, and the same tools with some adjustment perhaps, but the same tools Mm -hmm. can actually uh, work out. I'm wondering... That's the essential yeah, idea. I mean, we're taking this, the, what we know about leadership science, if you will, and applying it to the art yeah, of parenting. I admire that you've done that. Years ago, I wrote a book called Why Smart Executives Fail. And yes. um, I had a lot of people, that, half joking, half serious, say, why don't you write another book? Because a lot of this applies to parents, what I was talking about. Kind of the opposite of yours in the sense of learning from failure and mistakes and breakdowns. Yeah. And they said, why don't you write a book called Why Smart Parents Fail? And I didn't, obviously. And I think you did with a much more positive, not spin is too narrow a word, but framing, which I really like. Now, it sounds also like some of what you just described are things that good marriage counselors would do. And I don't know whether you or your co-author have gone into that world specifically. I can imagine that there are people in that community that would be reading this and be connecting to you. So I'm curious about that. This is a good tool for marriage counselors at a minimum. Well, it begins with your values and your vision and sharing those and getting smart about how to do that with your partner. And we run workshops and the initial lab in which we did this, we had multiple partnerships and we had them listening to and coaching each other, which was quite powerful, especially because it helps people to realize that they're not the only ones who were struggling with how to do it all in a way that works for the different parts of their lives. But we also have, after this initial piece on values and vision, they identify the most important people in their lives, starting with their kids and each other, but then beyond, including at work and in the community and friends. And then they engage in conversation, dialogues with those people in order to clarify their mutual needs and expectations. And again, there's training on how to do that and how each conversation is different, but the purpose is to connect more meaningfully with those most important people and to really understand what they need from you and and to be able to express what you need from them in ways that are realistic and honest and not what you imagine they think. Because for many people, what they imagine other people think is greater than what those people actually need from you. So we walk around with inflated ideas about what other people expect from us. And so having those conversations really helps to get a more realistic view of the the social landscape you're navigating every day. So all of this is the stuff of therapeutic encounters. And all of it leads to ideas for innovation and change and experiments along the lines that I was describing earlier with the family, with the child with special needs. So before I began my PhD in organizational psychology. I worked in clinical psychology in the 70s. I worked, in fact, for a year at uh, Mary Hitchcock. Yes, I was at the Brattleboro Retreat, which was a psychiatric hospital, and for three years on staff there, training in psychology. And we did work with families. I then pursued a master's in counseling psychology. So my early training was in clinical psychology. So I had some familiarity with that terrain. And my wife is a licensed clinical psychologist. Okay, we're connecting the dots here. Yes. So that's always kind of been my orientation in terms of my 
take on the how to grow leadership capacity is from a psychological perspective. And I also consulted with a number of child psychologists uh, because I am not one and I'm not a family therapist, nor is my co-author, Alyssa Westring. But we did review the literature and sort of curated what we gleaned from that literature on what it means to be a parent, what children need as a helpful set of guidelines for parents. But we are not ourselves child psychologists, and we make that very clear that that we're not. Yet, much of what we do is, of course, congruent with what family therapists and child psychologists would want you to do. Exactly. How are some of the responses of people in the business world versus parents or partners to the same type of exercise? How are those, are there any common themes in terms of how, what's different, what's the same, and how they, how they respond and address the same, whether it's this one exercise you just described or another one for that matter? Because of course the same person can fall into both groups quite easily and very often does. Yes, in fact, the initial group that we developed the model, so basically what we did was to take the total leadership work and convert it, you know, to sort of translate it to make it directly relevant for partners in parenting. And the people that we worked with, many of them were alumni of my total leadership course. So these are executives in different industries uh, who are also parents who wanted to be a part of this research lab. And the reaction is very similar to a structured method for identifying and articulating and sharing your values and your vision and who the most important people are in your life and talking to them and growing closer to them and then experimenting with new ways of getting things done that are good for them and good for you. To do that in a collective social learning experience is for those people who are ready for it, who want to do it, who are up for it, you know, who are motivated. It's really quite powerful and compelling. I think it was all the more so when people were doing this with their parenting partners because the stakes in some ways couldn't be higher. And they were directly together dealing with these questions and addressing conflicts as well as you know, their shared ideals and, and interests. And so there was, in some ways, a greater sense of urgency, I think, about the work with these couples than there was with the individuals and classes. It's interesting. So we're talking about work, we're talking about your personal life, and I know you've thought about and written about this topic of work-life balance, and everyone seems to talk about it, want to know about it. My students, 28 years old average, the traditional MBA student, they come in really thinking work-life balance, that's what they want. What advice do you have for people that want to try to be very successful? They are driven, they're high aspiration people, they want to be successful, but they don't want to turn around and say they don't know their kids after they're 40 years old or 50 years old. Some do, <laughs> but most don't. You're right. And of course, for the traditional MBA student age, most of those folks these days are not parents. So the experience is sort of anticipatory and not grounded in an experiential reality. That's true. There's a, always a bit of a baby boom when people come up here to Hanover. They're, for the spouse, there's often not a great jobs, sure. but uh, if you're planning a family, it's a pretty good time. Of course. Well, I started the Work-Life Integration Project at the Wharton School in 1991, and I was very deliberate about naming that project the Work-Life Integration Project so as to not use the term balance. Because even back then, we knew I wasn't the only one, but I was pretty clear that the ideal of balance is folly and impossible, and that you can't have 
there's no one who has perfect balance and that to, to pursue it is misguided because the metaphor is one of the scales in perfect balance, right? You know, the seesaw, the, the scales of justice, or however you want to think about that. And the problem with the balance metaphor is that it assumes win-lose. For one part of your life to be successful, the other part has to sacrifice. And while, of course, some sacrifice is necessary, and of course there is disappointment and tragedy along the way for everyone, all of us, no one gets out of this thing alive. <laughs> it's just a part of the human experience. When you think balance, you think trade-off automatically. And what I learned in my early research on this subject, which included going into the field to find people who were identified as somehow having a well-integrated or whole life by, by their colleagues and then studying those people. What did they do? How did they do it? What we found is that you can't have everything all at once, but you can find creative ways to better integrate the different parts of your life by knowing what you care about, knowing who you care about, what those people really need from you, not what you think they need, and then continually experimenting with new ways of getting things done that are good for them and for you, which turns out to be the essential aspects of what it takes to grow leadership capacity. So what I was finding in the 90s was that the puzzle of how to grow leadership capacity and how to integrate the different parts of your life was really the same thing. And so what I recommend to people, say, in their late 20s, is to start with, well, what do you really care about now? And what can you do to build support in your world by choosing the people who matter most to you and building those relationships and that work of support who are going to help you to pursue the life you want to lead? That is how you create a sense of harmony among the different parts, or at least increase the likelihood that you're going to get there. And then by taking specific actions, using small wins to experiment with ways of pursuing the life that you want that are consistent with your values, and to ensure that people around you know that that's what you're doing, you're much more likely to be living the life that you want to be living. What many young people fall into the trap of as I know you know as well as I do, is they don't listen to themselves, to what's in their heart. And instead, they too readily yield to the power of peer pressure and social comparisons. And it's very easy to lose sight of your purpose if you're not attending to it. And, and that's where I see the great derailers, is people who just forget what they're about and focus too much on what they think other people want them to be. And I think that's the great struggle of the late 20s and early 30s, as many people in developmental psychology and adult socialization have written about. It's you know how you discover yourself and move from being a child to being a responsible, independent adult who, who chooses their life. But it's, you know, it's not easy to do, and it's often painful. Social comparison is such a powerful mechanism for motivation for almost anything in life. I've thought about it a lot. It's, I mean, and as you know, there's a lot of really good academic research on comparisons, both historical and with peers, peer companies at a corporate or business level and at an individual level. And I think about this and say, boy, that is really, it's damaging. It's one of these things that you got to do two things at the same time. This is what leadership is to me. It's doing two opposites that People always say, or traditionally say, it's either or, but in fact, it's not either or, it's both. And so you can't totally ignore social comparisons. You need to pay attention to what's going on around you to be alert to try to get better. But if you let that dominate you, then you can't 
become who you want to become. And you don't even know, you don't even get to ask that question. And I think about if you're a runner and you're always going to compare yourself to someone else, you know you're going to lose. Unless you are the gold medalist in whatever that category is in the world, and there are not too many of those, there's always somebody better. There's always somebody taller. There's always somebody handsomer. There's always somebody who has more money. Well, okay, maybe for you and and the third floor up there. (laughs) I was speaking of you. I was speaking of you. But anyway, Nobody will believe that you're looking at each other with with this type of commentary. (laughs) Well, <laughs> that's right. Uh, so social comparison is a losing game. You will always, yes, inevitably you will lose unless you are the miracle one person who's better than everyone else in the world or whatever that particular category is. But you cannot ignore it at the same time. That's the dilemma for yeah. me. I think it's true for everyone. That is one of the great struggles of, of life is how do you stay centered on uh, you know, the person you want to be and live in the real world of real relationships that matter and to try to adjust to strengthen those and build those relationships over time when you know what other people want from you is going to be a little bit different than what you want for yourself so that is a great leadership challenge how do you pursue your vision of a better world and bring others along with you and that's the heart of what i've been teaching in total leadership parents who lead what's the better tomorrow that you have hope for, that you want to try to create, that's realistic for you to have some sort of impact on. And now, how do you bring others along with you to get, and that starts with dialogue. It starts with inquiring and connecting with the people who matter to find out what they really see when they look to you through their eyes. I call that taking the leadership leap, to see yourself through the eyes of others. And there's no substitute for simply listening, to hear. Here's what I think is important to you. Do I have it right? And when you get that and you're practicing, you're honing your craft at being able to take in that information from the people around you always, you're just smarter, wiser, if you will, about what the world needs from you. And if you're doing that and at the same time taking the time and energy to reflect on your evolving values and vision... That's going to increase the chances that you're going to be able to take smart action that's going to allow you to move in the direction you want to go in a way that works for other people. But it's never easy, and it's never perfect, well, no, that's for sure. Not. You know, you also made me think about all these different methods and theories on how to get people to do what you want them to do. You mentioned following, right? Yes. Uh, leaders need followers. Actually, before I get to that, let me ask you this, because it came up in a class maybe, I don't know, a couple months ago. And the question was, can you be a leader if you have no followers? A student asked me that. Hmm. And, and I, I think I answered yes, because it depends on the type of leadership, but it'd be highly limited or constrained. Because if you can't get anyone else to go along with you, you only can go so far. Maybe you could be inspirational to others and not directly lead them. So I kind of fumbled around with that. Right. Uh, uh-huh. It's an interesting question. I think at some level, you need people who are inspired by what you're doing and want to move in that direction or, or see the world that way. You know, was Picasso a leader? He didn't have an army, but he had a lot of people who followed him. So I think you do need people who believe in you and in the vision of the world you're trying to make happen. It's not a socially isolated <laughs> no, that, activity. That's, that's a good that kind of bottom line on it. It's not a socially isolated you could be physically isolated, well, right but socially now connected. Are. Right now we As are. We are. <laughs> so many of us um, have to be these uh, days. I, wa- I want to shortly talk about the coronavirus and life on the coronavirus and what you've been learning yeah. and helping others with. But back to this question on motivation. So you could motivate people 
as you know, our finance and economics colleagues have only one solution to motivation. It's called incentives, financial incentives. It's real. There's kind of what you describe, which is really understanding people, listening to people, communicating with people, trying to understand where they are and kind of forming a kind of a whole where you can move together and they want to be part of that. There's the Robert Cialdini work among others, which is around persuasion, kind of genius work, really, uh, around how to persuade other people. Some of this will overlap a little bit, but there's framing, you know, how you frame a problem. Kind of go to Daniel Kahneman and his, Mm -hmm. in that case, talk about a leader. Thousands or tens of thousands of disciples that are just academics, let alone average people, that talk about biases and and how you can get people to. There are really a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's very interesting, right? The field of social science has tackled this question about how do you get other people to do things you would like them to do. They've tackled it in, I just probably mentioned four or five, there's probably a lot more. Kind of amazing, actually. Truly. Well, it's it's something that most of us (laughs) worry about all the time. Uh, So it's not surprising that social scientists have tried to figure out what is it that compels people to support you and what is it that turns them away. And the works that you've described are all incredibly important. Uh, Cialdini especially has been influential in my own thinking. So it's very much about an influence game, sure. And the root in values makes it, in my view, and try to help people see students, clients, others, not manipulation, but rather ethical influence, because you're trying to get people to move in a direction that's good for them, as well as for you. And that's the tricky part, is to move beyond the tendency, the animal within all of us to act in a self-interested way and to see the world through the eyes of other people because that then enables you, perhaps paradoxically, to pursue the things that really matter to you. Yeah. So yeah, it is very much about influence for sure. And thank goodness there are so many brilliant people discovering new insights about how our minds work and our hearts work so that we can better Mm -hmm. understand how to bring yeah. other people along with us. Yeah, and one of the reasons I just, first of all, what you said made me think about that, but why I wanted to share it or at least put it out there is because, yeah. you know, listeners are all kinds of walks of life all over the world and different problems they're dealing with. But I bet everyone is dealing with this issue. I'm not one person all alone, kind of what you were saying as well about leadership, but I need other people. I can't survive without other people. I actually want to get something done. And this is completely relevant for mm-hmm. parents and for kids, actually. You think about kids and the incentives, you know, if you do this, Johnny, you can have another popsicle or something like that, which actually brings me to our discussion yes. of life and leadership and parenting under the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. What are you sharing, advising parents? And I'll say parents with younger kids than say we do uh, okay. that are working full time as close as they can get via Zoom at home, and they've got kids that are not in school. They may or may not be doing some Zooming for their own elementary school, and there's a huge, I've seen, variation in the quality and the immersion that's going on. What do you say to kids now as a parent when all these things are going on? There's a lot of things to be afraid of. Yes, there are. And I've been doing a number of these workshops over the last few months during our pandemic times, and I can Mm -hmm. tell you what's come up, what's been helpful. So let's start with the last point you made. There's a lot to be afraid of. One thing that parents can do is to not deny their own anxieties, but to own them, to embrace them. Yes, there are uncertainties. Yes, there's a lot that's new that we haven't dealt with before. This is the novel coronavirus. It's new. And what I can tell you, my dear child, 
is that I will do everything in my power to ensure that you are safe and secure because I love you more than anything. And I will do everything I can to protect you. But there are certain things that are beyond our control. But I will do everything I can. And here are the things that I'm concerned about. What is on your mind? So just giving people a chance, giving kids a chance to talk about what they're afraid of, to not deny it. That's a recipe for psychological disaster is to pretend that it's not real and to deal in fantasy instead of reality. Depending on the age and how much they're capable of taking in, you have to modulate that. So that's one thing that people have found helpful is don't be afraid to be afraid. It's okay. Everyone is. With your head under a pillow, if you weren't, there's a lot going on that is indeed producing anxiety. So yes. And for yourself, get help. Talk to friends. Talk to clergy. Talk to people who have expertise in counseling to help you deal with your own fears, your own anxieties. That's mm-hmm. one important element. There's always risk in life. There was before the pandemic and there will be after. Nothing is free and easy except for the very <laughs> rare instance when it is. Life is fraught with risk. We're going to do everything we can to live according to how we want to live, but we can't control everything. What's important to you? What's on your mind? So that's very important. Dealing with the reality, not being afraid to be afraid. Another issue that's come up again and again is to see, you know, there are some silver linings. We were chatting a bit before we started recording about how there's some benefits to remote and virtual conferencing and teaching, not least being our environmental impact in terms of not traveling. One of the silver linings that is helpful, I think, for people to focus on is that this crisis that we're all living through together creates an opportunity for parents to be more deliberate, more conscious, more explicit about their values. Here's what we stand for. Here's what's important to us as a family. Here's what we care about most. And here's why we're doing what we're doing now. Here's why we're wearing masks or not. Here's why we are using some of our resources to help bring food to people who don't have it. Here's how we are going to express our interest in justice. Whatever the issues are that you want to teach your kids, now's a really good time to do it. And being values-driven as a leader, as a parent, makes you feel a little bit better, like you've got a greater sense of control and purpose, and your kids need it, and they benefit from it. So that's the second thing. A third that I'll mention, and then I'll pause and see if you want to continue on this theme, is boundaries. It's become increasingly difficult. It's always been a, a challenge. But in the digital era of most of your listeners' lives, it's been an increasing challenge for how you shut work off, how you shut family off, you know, how you shut friends off, how you focus your attention on the people that matter when they need it. You know, with the obliteration of the physical boundary between work and the rest of life that has occurred in these pandemic times for so many of us, particularly knowledge workers, it's become even more important for people to think through and experiment with how they can create the kinds of boundaries that work for them and their families and their business colleagues or work colleagues or student colleagues or whatever stage of life you're in. And that means dialogue, negotiation, and experimentation with how you're going to find the time and the place to be able to focus. So you might say to your child, here's why I need to have an hour each afternoon sitting in the closet by myself. Here's how this is going to benefit you. By my being able to have that time, what I expect is going to happen over the next week or so if I'm able to do that 
is that I will be less stressed when I'm with you. I'll be less distracted and better able to take care of you in, in ways mm -hmm. that, that are important to you. Let's just try that, okay? So, I mean, that's perhaps a silly example, but uh, <laughs> it's one that's come up quite a bit, especially city dwellers who only mm -hmm. have closet space to escape right. to for private time. And same with employers. Working from home doesn't mean that you're available all the time now. So if you find that your boss is assuming that, oh, you're home, I can reach you anytime, I know that you're there, and that is causing stress, burnout, you know, conflict with your family, there are ways of negotiating that boundary that are going to work for her, your boss, as well as for you and your family. But it doesn't happen by magic, and it doesn't happen by somebody else taking care of it. You've got to lead that change by having a kind of conversation that goes along the same lines. Hey, boss, what I've noticed is that there's been an increase in frequency of the number of messages that I'm getting from you after 9 p.m. Hmm. Have you noticed that too? Yes, do. I have noticed that. And that's because I'm working my butt off trying to save our company. Aren't you? Well, yes, of course, that's important to me too. What I'd like to try though, my dear boss, is perhaps for the next week that I go offline after 9 p.m. And that I believe I'm going to be more productive, and you're going to see that in improved performance if we can try that for the next week or so. Would you be willing to try that? So you can write to me whenever you want, of course, but I'm not going to process email after 9 p.m. for the next week. Maybe we'll just try that on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Fridays. So I'd like to try that because that'll enable me to, to take care of some things that are important for me to maintain my productivity, my performance, and my health. Would you be willing to try that? And then you flex around that. But that's just as an example. To have a conversation about boundaries with people at home, with people at work, that's been useful. But I said that there were three. <laughs> I'm going to add one more because this is the one I think has been most helpful for me, an old man, to be able to say to people, you know, you can't do everything you used to do. So accept that. If you're at home and you have children at home that you're caring for and they're no longer at school or no longer away at a, some kind of summer program if it's summertime, that means ultimately there is a limit as to how much you can do. If you're no longer able to have the freedom to do the things that you used to be able to do because you have a new set of responsibilities, that's reality. So how are you going to adjust to that? You can't do everything you used to do. And everybody knows and accepts that. I did a workshop recently, and I almost always start the conversation with, what kind of leadership is needed today Just to hear what people are thinking? And I was shocked, Sid, by how many people said uh, empathetic. Yeah. I'm not used to hearing that. Usually what I hear is adaptive, rapid response to change, inclusive. But empathy is the buzzword now because everybody is struggling and we're also having a better understanding of the kinds of struggles that each of us has, particularly as we're able to see into each other's mm -hmm. living rooms and kitchens on front porches or wherever as we're working. I agree. There's this barrier that's been totally broken because we're all dialing in wherever we're dialing in. I'm in my dining room. I, yeah. I mean, the other day I was in the back porch, whatever. And yeah, so it's breaking down some of these fake barriers that we put up because people like to put up all these things to protect ourselves. And I wonder how long-lasting some of these changes are going to be. You've probably read Facebook and some other Silicon Valley companies announced they're going to move a lot of people to online or remote, is the right word, remote work. Uh -huh. And how long that'll last, will it last, I don't know. But I think it's a real thing, and it's going to be a certain percentage of the population. It's almost like the gig economy, which was, you know, everybody talked about gig economy for the last five years. It's slowed down a little bit now. It turns out that the method of working 
in the gig economy is now going to be a dominant, not maybe not the dominant, a dominant method of working in the traditional economy, which is actually really interesting, but it's going to have far-flung effects. Exactly what you're just talking about with kids and managing time. And what I also kind of decipher some of what you said, at least as it really triggers thoughts in my mind, it's you got to speak up. You're in control of your own life. Don't expect anyone else to do that. I mean, it'd be nice to have other people looking after you, but... You don't want to Doesn't go on happen. the assumption that uh, somebody's going to be there past the age of two or three when your mother or father, hopefully, is there. So it's your job to do that. And it turns out that it's not that hard if you just could be human. Because you've demonstrated, what your examples demonstrate to me, is a degree of vulnerability where you just kind of, you're an honesty with your boss in that kind of role play thing that you just were describing about boss, you know, nine o'clock after nine o'clock, let's try it. Uh, so there's honesty, there's appealing for a degree of trust, certainly empathy. The word you said at the end is a powerful word that I'm also seeing more and more and more. So, mm -hmm. and you're not just doing it for yourself. I'd like this time boundary to try to enact it so that I can be more productive and deliver better results for you. It's not just, my kids need me after 9 o'clock, so you're not going to see me after 9 o'clock. This is ridiculous. If you don't like it, I'm going to go work next door. Or if you know, if I'm going to go work for another company. First of all, it's harder to say that in the current labor market, where California is going to approach 20% unemployment, for example, and nationally, it's in the teens and going to rise. So you're not making demands of my life, my needs, my family. It's about us. How are we going to solve a joint problem? And that is, I think, at the heart of much of the influence literature that you were referring to earlier. And you know, a lot of what you're also saying is part of the solution to the stress problem. How do you reduce stress in your life? High achieving people create incredible amount of stress on themselves because they're going for targets. They compete against themselves. I mean, I've seen this time and time again, and I'm a little bit like that, at least I'm trying to calm down. I've done well calming down. Uh, you can see me, there's gray hair and there's a lot less than it used to be, but whatever. I'll chalk that up to genetics more than lifestyle. Good man. Okay, uh, I'm not going to comment. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's a great way to be successful at a certain stage. And I think about the great uh, ski racer, Michaela mm -hmm. Schifrin, and she's just still, I think, early to mid-20s. And she's on track to be the greatest in the history of the sport, downhill. Not downhill, but, uh, but skiing, not just downhill, but slalom and others. And she has always talked about who she competes against. And she doesn't compete against any of the other women that because she cannot control that. She cannot control what they do, really, to your theme right. earlier. She can control herself. Mm -hmm. So she competes against what she believes her capability has given her preparation. And mm -hmm. if she doesn't meet that goal... She's going to try to look for ways to do that and exceed that next time. And it's actually a very empowering thing. You stop worrying about everybody else and you worry about yourself a little bit. Yeah, right. Well, after I published a Total Leadership, people would ask me, well, this all sounds great, Professor, but what about the people <laughs> who are really super successful? Do they do this whole work-life thing? And the mm -hmm. common sort of mythology is that to be successful, you need to forsake the other parts of your life to be successful, say, in business or your profession or sport. And I had been asking my students to write biographies of great leaders for the last 20 years or so. And I decided to write a book about that. And I called it Leading the Life You Want. And I selected six people, three men, three women. There were some Democrats and Republicans among them. And you know they varied in a number of different ways. And that's one of the reasons why I chose these six. But all of them, people of great significance, illustrated the idea that you become, there are lots and lots and lots and lots of examples of people who become really successful from by any standard, not by forsaking their families, 
their communities, their personal lives. Mm. But to the contrary, by investing in those aspects of their lives, because those aspects of their lives are important for their success in the public and professional sphere by providing support, succor, emotional support, all kinds of resources and inspiration, especially when it gets difficult as it does for everyone, especially in the face of failure, which all of us, all of us experience. So I wrote that book, Leading the Life You Want, as a kind of answer to the people who were saying, yeah, but. And I think it helped, but there's still, you know, the myth out there is you've got to give up everything to be successful. And of course, you know, there's no perfect solution. And yes, we have to, you know, discipline and sacrifice to do things that are really important. Nothing comes free. But there's also a lot of benefit that we see in people's commitments to the other parts of their lives that help them to create both harmony and excellence in the world. Another important piece of evidence that I've gleaned from my decades of doing this work now is that we study mm -hmm. that four-way view that I mentioned at the top where you look at what's important and where you allocate your attention and how satisfied you are. We also ask people how well they're performing in the different parts of their lives and have people in those different parts of their lives rate their performance. And for the people who have been in my four-month course or program and companies, we assess before and after how things change as a result of their mm -hmm. focusing on what's important who's important, and then doing these experiments designed to make things better for all the different parts, what I call pursuing four-way wins. And what we find is that after investing in these activities and practicing these skills, your values tend not to shift, but the allocation of your attention tends to shift away from work or school and to the other parts of your life, and your satisfaction improves in all the domains. Finally, your performance to a lesser degree, but still significantly, it improves according to the assessment of people around you at work. Less attention to work, better ability to meet the expectations of people who matter at work, which my economist friends, you know, they look at that and they scratch their heads and they argue about the methods and they say, no, that can't be. But it's been repeated and repeated and there's a lot of anecdotal evidence for this as well. Why is that? Because people are more focused on the things that matter to them. They let go of the things that don't matter so much. They are more focused on the things that matter to the people around them, and they're less distracted in their pursuit. They bring more energy and more focus to the things that matter, and so they perform better. It reminds me a little bit of... Um Cal Newport. I don't know if you know uh, if you know Cal. I have, I've had him on my radio show twice, and uh, I'm a big fan. So am I. He and he's a Dartmouth person, no less, as well as being a faculty member at. Uh, ah. Okay. Public service announcements <laughs> allowed by the host. Go so, on, go ahead. Cal, so, keep, so Cal was on at the end of season uh, last season, season one, and uh, yeah, he talks about less is more in a lot of practical ways. And one of the things he said is how you can get really smart about how you spend your time. I mean, not quite as much in terms of the allocation you're talking about, but more in terms of there are different techniques and methods to accomplish your goals. And not all methods are equal. And time does not lead to performance. Time on task does not lead to performance. It's quality of that time and, and what you do about it. And so there's a lot of consistency, yep. I think, in those two themes. And that matters for parenting as well. Quality time is real. It's a lot more effective in terms of strengthening your relationship with your children if you are giving them undivided attention for an hour as compared to two hours where you're on your smartphone while they're doing something else and you just happen to be sitting next to each other, occasionally you know, glancing at each other. There's a world of difference there. 
And I'm not just saying that because I think it's true from my own experience. There's a boatload of research that supports that idea. And I've done some of it myself. And it's the same concept. What you choose to devote your attention to, which is perhaps your most Mm -hmm. precious asset as a leader, Mm -hmm. what you choose to attend to is all. Uh, and it affects how well we do as in performing as parents as well as, you know, in the workplace. I've always, uh, presented a lot of my work is strategy as well as leadership, but especially in the earliest years. And I always thought if you told me where a company spent their money, I could tell you their strategy, no matter what it is they say. And what you're now adding, at least for me, is if you tell me what, how people are spending their time, I will be able to tell you what kind of life they have. Yes, and I would add as a caveat to that, though. I prefer to think about attention rather than time. Quality time, then, is what we're talking about. Well, yeah, because you can be physically present but psychologically absent. So what is that time? If you're with your kid but you're working. Real time. Where's your mind? Yes. What are you attending to? And that's what we've been documenting. And indeed, the closer you are to aligning what you attend to with what's important to you, generally things go better. We're almost out of time, but one of the things I personally have struggled with is there's so many things I want to do both professionally and now over time as I've gotten older, personally as well, more hobby-like. I've been fortunate in being able to spend lots of quality time with people I love. What you have to do is give up something because there is only... I know how to focus, but I also limits. know there's only 24 hours a day and you got to, for sure, you've probably done this exercise. You may, may even be one that you've used in uh, parents of the leader elsewhere, but you start to look at your calendar and you look very carefully and you say, what are you really spending your time on? And is that what you meant to do? I mean, your, your first exercise you described uses that, I think, as one of the ways to, one metric to see if you're actually, which of these four areas are you spending your time on? Yeah. I mean, people immediately see a a lack of alignment. It's almost always there and it sparks ideas for Mm -hmm. innovation. Like, all right, what could I do to really focus on what matters to me? And when you do that with your partner, it's doubly enriching, even more so because you're also guessing what they might be saying about you and and you about them. And where you see gaps there, and this is quite common these days between men and women, unfortunately, we're finding that men at home now, they think they're doing a lot more housework and childcare than they are, <laughs> according to their spouses. And that's a really important conversation. So it's useful for your own sense of purpose and living the life that matters to you, but also to do so in harmony with your most right, important right. people. I mean, it's, when you compare to what you did in the past to what you do now, yeah, that's more. But you compare to what your spouse might be doing, or in this case, the, well, it's not always a woman, but whoever it happens to be, that is the primary homemaker, uh-huh. uh, relatively speaking. It's nothing compared to that. It's a, it's a question of the framing, where you're starting, right? You're anchoring, as a behavioral psychologist might say. I'm anchoring it on, well, what I usually do, and now I'm doing a lot more. But if you anchor it on what your partner's doing, you have a whole other story. So it's quite interesting to think about it that way. Yes, and it, it's more likely to lead to a greater sense of a mm. shared purpose and, you know, mutual support if you're doing what you want to do and I'm doing what I want to do and and then there's the stuff that neither of us want to do that we share that in a way that we understand and makes sense to us rather than assume that it's good and fair and just when it might not be. So Stu, last question for you and it's an advice question but it's got a particular spin to it which is advice to yourself when you were a young man. When you were 21 let's just say and if you, the Stu Friedman of, of today, could kind of walk over to wherever the 21-year-old Stu was doing whatever he was doing, and you'd lean over and say, you know, Stu, there's one thing you want to know about life. There's one thing you want to think about. There's one thing to pay attention to. What would that be? What would you 
advise yourself at that early age? So long ago. Uh, 21, that was 1973, and I went to the State University of New York at Binghamton, Harper College. So I was a student there. I had come from Brooklyn and working class, but I was not a good student. In fact, I was a terrible student as an undergrad. I basically majored in drugs and music, and not the scientific study of either, <laughs> but purely recreational and playing. I, I began playing music, so I was in a band in college. That's what I spent most of my time doing. And I realized, by the time I was 21, I realized, oh, darn it, there's so much more I could have learned and done. I mean, I still managed to get a decent GPA. I, I frankly, not sure how that happened, but I would have advised myself, Stu, you got to take yourself a little bit more seriously in terms of what you can grow into with your mind, you know, beyond your social and passionate interests in music and developing relationships. I mean, those were all crucial and super important, but the intellectual growth was stunted. And it wasn't until years later that I discovered that I could become a scholar and that, that that was an aspect of who I wanted to be that I could really develop. I would have advised myself to take myself more seriously in that regard at that stage. Now, when I tell students that story, they say, oh, come on, you're just making that up so that we'll study harder for your next exam or something. It seems kind of self-serving. but uh, And the fact that it might lead them to study harder is not a bad <laughs> externality yet. Yeah, I didn't think of it, though, for that purpose. It's it's genuinely what I wish somebody would have told me, somebody who I trusted. I really appreciate your taking the time and talking and sharing your, your ideas on your new book, Parents That Learn, but also lots of other things as well. It's always fun to, uh, to talk to you. Thank you very much, Stu Frieden. Sid, this has been great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the SIDCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you Season 2 and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you could email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.